0: Hi, I'm Sophia, and I'm going to be reading Micah chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil, Shall I come with my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Sophia, that was terrific. And her security detail. there' with her too. Thank you for that, Andre. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you friends. Uh, as um, As you may note from Sophia's reading, uh, so this Sunday is family worship weekend, and we do this approximately once a month. Uh, one of the things that they've learned over time uh, is a really important component in helping kids keep their faith into adulthood is regular exposure to worship with the whole family and not just in the kids' ministry. So we, uh, you know, three weeks out of four, our kids are in Sunday school, age-appropriate learning with the Kid Life crew, and then one out of four, they're in here with us. So we're always stoked to have the kids and have uh, just great kids like Sophia uh, help with different aspects of the service, too. So uh, moreover, As we talk about, uh, for us as a community, I mean, we are here because we are learning from Jesus how to live our lives the way that Jesus would live our lives if he was the one that was living them. We are uh, learning to grow as his apprentices and to carry on his work in the world. And to that end, our priority this year is outreach. In 2024, really, that is our main focus. And Uh, The the last two weeks, just to give you a quick recap, and uh, there's been a lot of great interaction over the last two weeks, and thank you for that, but um, uh, talking about evangelism the last two weeks, and this idea of witness, right, that for most of us, we are not going to be called to be preachers or theologians or apologists, but our call, the way that we live this aspect of the faith out, is through being a witness, living with Jesus, and talking about that life with Jesus. Uh, We want to not overcomplicate that, but just lean into the simplicity of bearing witness to who Jesus is in our lives. Last week, we talked about uh, praying and acting and speaking, and this being our posture in a post-Christian world, and uh, particularly leaning into that aspect of prayer, that the first work of bearing witness is just prayer for those around us, praying that God would move in the lives of people that he's put in our lives already. I uh, got a, a great comment this last week from someone who said, I, you know, I was here last week, I wrote down two names on, uh, on that little card that we gave you last week. I wrote down two names and started to pray for them and got a random text out of the blue from both of them within the next two days. If I had a dollar for every time I hear that story. Seriously, God moves when we pray. Uh, so that's, that's a big focus for this year too. And today we want to add another layer to that as well talking about uh, another very important piece when it comes to our mission in the world, and that's the biblical work of compassion and justice. The biblical work of compassion and justice. And friends, when we talk about the mission of God in the world, it always encompasses both evangelism and justice, both evangelism and social action in all of its forms. Both of these are a part of the mission of God in the world, and of, of what we as followers of Jesus want to lean into. So maybe think about it this way. Uh, when we see the mission of God in scripture, it's always to the whole person. A person's soul or spirit, but also to their mind, also to their body. We are, we are whole people, which is why Jesus calls us to love God as whole people, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We aren't just a bunch of parts, we are whole people. Now, when you look, for instance, at the ministry of Jesus, you see this lived out, right? So did Jesus, in his ministry to the world around him, did he invite people to receive forgiveness and salvation for their souls? He did, yes? Uh, and in fact, sometimes this got him in trouble. He was always forgiving the wrong people, and so, <clears throat> you know, or in the eyes of some. And so this, this is part of what Jesus did. Now, did Jesus also meet physical needs as he ministered to people? Of course, right? He healed people. He cast out evil spirits. He fed the masses. He was ministering not just to people's spirits, but also to their bodies. Now, one more here. Did Jesus also speak against areas of injustice in that society? He did. He did. Especially in the religious establishment, he called out practices that were oppressing others. Also a little bit, dipping into the political. Uh, confiscatory taxes was an area that he spoke to. Uh, he called Herod a fox, you know, who was this sort of wicked, corrupt figure in, uh, in government. Um, so both of these are, are at play all the time. As we think about the mission of God in the world and our participation in that, it's always gonna be to whole people. Body, mind, spirit. We want to be about all of those things, uh, just as we see the scriptures teach us, both Old and New Testament, and as we see the example of Jesus does as well. So today, focusing in on the latter half, that social action piece, compassion and justice, what does this look like? So our text this morning Uh, We're going to look at a scripture from the Old Testament, which Sophia read for us. It's an Old Testament prophet named Micah. And in this passage, we have a great statement of what it looks like to honor God uh, in how we relate to those around us, particularly those who are in need. And here it is in short. There's three pieces to it. God tells us to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Let's pray and we'll unpack each of those together. Uh, Lord God, uh, we want to, in our, our apprenticeship to Jesus, we want to be like him. And we want to serve the world around us in the way that Jesus did. At the same time, we confess that sometimes that's difficult, sometimes it's intimidating, sometimes it can feel overwhelming. And God, we just confess that we need your help in this. Uh, We cannot, apart from your Holy Spirit, your good work in our lives, carry out the good that you would have us do. So God, fill us with your spirit, give us courage as a church, may we be about the things that you are about. God, protect us from falling into a place of complacency or endless introspection where it's only about us. God, would you give us eyes to see the world around us and courage to address the world as you would have us do? We give you thanks, God. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so here's some context. So through Micah, God is calling out the Israelites in two areas. One is idolatry. Right, There were, were things that they had put above God in their lives. And the second is in the area of injustice. Namely, the rich and the powerful in their society, uh, they were exploiting and neglecting those who were poor and those who were powerless. And so God sends this message via the prophet Micah that the nation of Israel, that God's people need to repent or they are going to be judged. Now, the Israelites, they want to know, okay, what, what do we do to make this right? And that's where we're starting in the text here in verse 6. Micah gives sort of their hypothetical response to God. How do we make this right, right? And they're asking the question, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Right. They pause there. Now, they're asking, in essence, uh, can I make up for my shortcomings with more worship? Right. In, in the ancient Near East, worship is sacrifice, sacrifice is worship. These are one and the same, yes? So they're asking, can I make up for my sin by worshiping more? Can I bring some really spectacular offerings for God? Young calves, veal cutlets, right? This is what we're, we're offering here. Will that be enough? And the implied answer here is, is no. That's not what God is looking for. So they up the ante. Say, so, well, how about rams, right? You like lamb, right? Everybody likes lamb. How about, how about lots and lots and lots of rams? And the answer again is no. Not what God is looking for. Well, olive oil you know, it's good for cooking. It's good. It's terrific. Olive oil. How about rivers and rivers of olive oil? And again, the answer is no. And then finally, it's almost like this throw up your hands and, well, what do you want from me? Right? Well, you want my child? You want my firstborn? What shall I offer to make up for my sin? And kind of sit with that for just a minute. Because I I would suggest that sometimes we do something similar. Sometimes we take kind of this this, uh, balance the scales view of spirituality, where we know that we are in sin in some area. We know that we are in the wrong, but we don't really want to change that thing. So instead, we say, well, God, how about if I put something on this side of the scale and we get things to balance out? If I just do enough good over here, will that be enough to let me not deal with my sin? Right? It's this little bargain that we kind of strike with God. Anybody want to own that? You feel that a little bit? Some timid nods? Okay, we'll take that. We'll take that. But you know, you, you'll say to God, hey, I, I'll, I'll go to church every week. right? Or I'll start to tithe. I'll set up auto pay. That's how committed I'll be. I'll, I will, you know, I'll never miss. God, I will do this or this or this. But I just kind of want to hold on to this thing over here. I don't want to let that go. That's sort of what the Israelites are dealing with God in this passage. And God says, no, that's not what it is that I'm looking for. Verse 8, he says, this is what I do want. He has showed you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Again, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, he's not saying here that worship is unimportant, by the way. God does want our worship, and he's worthy of our worship. But what he is saying is that worship without obedience is hollow. It's meaningless. We become that proverbial person who's always saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, but is entirely self-centered and always puts themselves first. And you kind of say to that person, you know, I appreciate you saying I love you, but you could kind of back it up with your actions too. That would be nice. God says what I want from you is for you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So let's break these down, yes? So act justly. So uh, we're going to be a little nerdy this morning, give you a touch of Hebrew. For those who enjoy the nerdiness, you're welcome. For those who do not, so sorry. Uh, Mishpat is the word behind here. It's, it's one of those biblical words that we should kind of know, mishpat. And uh, it's usually translated justice, sometimes translated as some other uh, kind of parallel words too. But essentially, this refers to things being restored to the way that they should be. Mishpat, justice, is a restoration of things to the way that they should be. So this this includes punishment for wrongdoing, that's part of mishpat in the Old Testament. It also includes the restoration of rights or the giving of rights where rights are absent, right? So if there is an imbalance in terms of, uh, of one's rights, mishpat is what restores that. I uh, thinking about that this week. Um, one, of my, uh, one of my things every January, Martin Luther King Day, I start a new Martin Luther King book I'm making my way through all of his writings over time. Uh, Picked up one this January called Why We Can't Wait. Has anybody read this? It might end up being my favorite, it's fabulous. But the main main thing in this book is he's talking about in 1863 we had the emancipation of slaves in our country. In 1963, during the heart of the Civil Rights Movement, 100 years later, uh, they're working on voting rights African Americans. 100 years later. And one of the biggest criticisms that they're receiving in the movement is you're moving too fast. You know, we're, we're, you, got, you got to slow this down. It's too disruptive. It's this and that. And his answer to this, his answer to why we can't wait, is it's been 100 years. And we've got all these things that we're working on. We're just talking about voting. Can we just get voting? There's an imbalance there, right? There's an absence of a right that should be there. Mishpat, Mishpat restores rights that should be there, or creates them where they need to be. Now, in the book of Micah, what kind of injustice might God have in mind that needs to be rectified? Uh, let me give you a, a couple here. We'll bounce around the book of Micah. This is chapter 2, verse 1. It says, what sorrow awaits you who lie awake at night thinking up evil plans? You rise at dawn and hurry to carry them out simply because you have the power to do so. When you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. All right. So this, this is example one. This is using one's power power for your own benefit at the expense of another. He says, because you have the power to do so, you find a way to take what is not yours. A misuse of power. I I mean, we could give so many examples, I think, in our society of how this plays out today. Uh, But maybe we should note this. The power itself is not bad. Nowhere in scripture is power condemned. In fact, there's a lot of trouble given to empower people who are good people because power can also be used for good. It's an interesting thing to think about. Do you have power in one way or another? Or maybe to reframe it, and in language that's pretty common to this discussion today, in any way, shape, or form, do you have privilege? you have unearned advantage in your life? That is another way of saying power. The question is, friends, how do we use that? If you do, well, that can be a gift. Use that for the benefit of others. That's what mishpat does. It's power properly used. Uh, here's another. Micah 6. What shall I say about the homes of the wicked filled with treasures gained by cheating? What about the disgusting practice of measuring out grain with dishonest measures? How can I tolerate your merchants who use dishonest scales and weight? The rich among you have become wealthy through extortion and violence. Your citizens are so used to lying that their tongues can no longer tell the truth. Right? Lines become so comfortable, it just kind of flows out. Uh, but the issue here is wealth improperly gained. Wealth gained through lying. Wealth gained through cheating. Right? And, and again, like we would say with power, the money itself isn't the problem. Money is a tool, and that can be used for the good of others also. But the question is, how do we acquire it? It's a good question to ask ourselves, too. In our business practice, do we lie? Do we cheat? Do we cut corners? Do we do things that are shady? If we employ others... Are we employing them well? Or are we just using them for our benefit? Right? This is the, the way that we use our money. Gain through dishonest means. One more here. Micah 7. Officials and judges alike demand bribes. The people with influence get what they want. And together they scheme to twist justice. Even the best of them is like a briar. The most honest is as dangerous as a hedge of thorns. That's a bummer. Um, but what's he talking about here? Right? He's talking here about the systems themselves have become corrupted. The judges can't be trusted because the, the system has gone bad. The officials can't be trusted. They're, you need to bribe them to get what you want. Um, you know. Again, this is, is common for us today. As, as it ever has been. I, you know, front page of the paper this week, uh, another LA City council person, I emphasize another, went to prison for receiving bribes. It's, it's still a thing. Uh, sin is something that we experience as individuals, and when enough individuals are experiencing sin together, then systems themselves become corrupted by sin too. The Old Testament and New Testament both speak to this reality, and part of mishpat, is bringing restoration to that. If we find ourselves in a situation where people don't feel like they can rely on the courts, where people don't feel like they can rely on the police, where people don't feel like they can rely on government, then we're experiencing injustice. And Mishpat makes that right. Uh, This is is a a good place to throw in an update on kind of what's going on with with us and some other churches and the Torrance Police Department. Um, for those who, who don't know, let me catch you up just a little bit. But uh, summer of 2020, uh, when a lot of, a lot of protests going on, and including some here in the city of Torrance, um, I, I had kind of, this, kind of this moment while driving past the police station, which if you don't know is on your way here. You passed it when you came in. I was driving past, and... And kind of had this experience of thinking, you know, um, as churches, we, we need to be more involved in what's going on in policing in the city, be part of the conversation that's happening there. And so I uh, called my friend Ken, who's, he's one of the few African-American pastors in the city, and asked if he'd be part of it. And we, we got a couple others on board, too, and asked if we could meet with the chief of police and just start a conversation about policing here and, uh, some of what's going good and some of what is not as good. And uh, to their credit, they were really open, were really receptive, really took us in. And we've been, been meeting together for several years now uh, to talk in a very proactive and preventative way about how to do this well in our city and avoid some of the tragedies that we've seen in other cities. Um, about a year into these conversations... Uh, we had an incident with Torrance police where uh, a couple of officers had pulled somebody over. Uh, In the course of this, they arrested the person and impounded the car. And then after hours, the police officers went back to the impound lot, snuck in, vandalized the car, uh, tore it up, spray-painted swastikas on it. Um, It it was a bad scene. Um, They were arrested. They were fired. First they were fired, and they were arrested. Um and their, their trials are actually still ongoing now. In the investigation that came out of that, uh, they discovered, too, there, was, there were 13 officers who were part of a uh, text message thread <clears throat> that was, um, was just super rough. I mean, just filled with, with a lot of really harsh, racist language, threats of violence, homophobic rants, really, really appalling. Um, things that I would not repeat for us here while the kids are in the room. Google it if you will, but prepare to get really angry if you do. Uh, So we met after that and and asked the chief, so what do you plan to do? What's the move here? And um, I think to his great credit, what they did was they, they invited the California Department of Justice to come and investigate Torrance PD as a department. This is super unusual, by the way. If you know at all how this works, usually the Department of Justice has to sue a department to be able to come in and do any work at all. They said this is the first time a department has ever invited the Department of Justice to come and investigate. Uh, So they did, and that's that's mostly over. Uh, The bulk of those officers have been fired. A couple were cleared as not really being part of it, but um, that's kind of where all that's at. But in the midst of all this, uh, I remember asking the chief of police a question. Um, I I asked him, do you think that you've gotten all the bad apples out of the department? And he didn't even hesitate. He said, no, I haven't. And I think it's going to take me about four years to get the rest. I was like, wow. He sounds kind of serious. And I, I appreciated that answer so much. Uh, and I, I remember saying to him that day, chief, if you're as good as your word, then we as churches will do what we can to see that you stay in office because that's the kind of policing that we hope we have here in our city. Fast forward to today, um, or by today, I mean the last six months or so. Um, the, the chief has, he's done well and without getting into a lot of details, um, They've passed over certain people, they've retired out certain people, they're doing more hiring from the outside. They're doing a lot to change the culture of the department and they've also kind of kicked the hornet's nest in doing so. So, um, you know, we asked the question a little while back, uh, is the chief's job in danger? And we were told, yes, it actually kind of is. I said, well, what can we do? I said, well, it's the city council that hires and fires the mayor, and they're getting pressure from some constituents who know there's unhappy officers and you know perhaps you could speak on our behalf and so we did instead of meeting with the mayor and we've been having conversations with the city <clears throat> about, uh, about our preference for the way that they're currently doing it and trying to provide some cover for city officials who are doing good who are. Who are actually pursuing mishpat. Um, that, that's probably the most current real-life example I have of what this looks like for us. Does this kind of make sense? Again, a picture. Uh, and this is one way that we're participating in this in our city, is through these kinds of relationships. And we've got got some similar things going on in regards to homeless ministry in the city and whatnot too. And I'll speak about those in a minute. But um, but that's act justly. That's one. It's act justly. Uh, second is this: it's love mercy. Second Hebrew word of the day, my nerdy friends, is hesed. The word is hesed, and this refers to committed, generous love. This is translated as God's covenant love, Uh, and it it involves a lot, Uh, but it starts with this idea that God's commitment to us is unchanged by how well or how poorly we are doing at any given moment. So um, I don't know if that's something that you need or you appreciate, but I like that a lot, that God's love for me is not contingent on my win-loss record. It's not contingent on how well I'm doing in any given season. It's not based on the strength of my faith. It is based on the strength of God's faithfulness. And he is always strong enough. His love is a committed love. And what we might ask, does that have to do with mercy? If we're to love mercy, well, how does this relate? Well, if you think about it, if we are to be merciful towards somebody if we are to be, as, as it were, accepting of how they are, not as how we wish they were, it requires us to be merciful in our judgment of them and the way that we hold that person in our minds, and our thoughts, the way that we relate to that person. Rather than loving someone if and only if they conform to our expectations, we're called to love, to said in the way that God does, apart from their win-loss record, apart from how they're doing, Just to love. And that that is a merciful estimation of another person. Think here is a great example of this. Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. I don't know about you, but it sure looks to me like they know what they're doing. But he takes a merciful assessment of them. He sees them in their weakness. And he responds to them in that weakness. Instead of withholding love. Until they are ready to be who He expects them to be. Now, uh, that's, that's the set. That's the set. And God says, this is what I, want, what I want you to do. I want you to act justly, and I want you to love Hassad. Now, how might this relate to our neighbors in need? Uh, try this as an example. Um, it can be really easy when we see somebody who is homeless or they're chronically poor, uh, to assess that person from a distance and to assign motives to them. Say, oh, well, they're probably lazy, or I bet they're an addict, or maybe they're a scammer, or whatever. And, um, and maybe so, right? If you've worked at all with the homeless, you know that's, that's a decent portion of the population. But has said calls us not to uh, make our mercy contingent on any of those factors. To take a generous view of another person and just to love. Just to love, apart from conditions that we might put around that love and whether they, they deserve said love or not. What does this look like in practice? Uh, it looks a lot of different ways. I'll give you mine as sort of an example and you can can take it for what it's worth. I don't think you have to do this how I do it, but by way of example, um, you know, when when people are asking for money or asking for food or whatever, um, I, I don't think I've ever been a, in a place where I'm able to or eager to help everybody, but I, I try to help some, right? I, I was coming out of a parking lot uh, in Torrance on Friday, and there was... There's a guy there with a sign, and you know he's asking for food or asking for money. I'm not even sure which, but um, you know, just just seeing this guy just for a second, right? You're in the car, you're in motion, um, but but just in that brief second, you look at this guy, and you just know this is a guy who has been working hard his whole life, right? He just had the hands of a worker. Right, his legs were kind of bowed. You know, he looked like he'd been riding a horse, kind of thing. It's just like, man, this is a guy who has used his body and used it hard his whole life. And I have no idea what brought him to a point where he's standing in this corner, holding a sign. But my heart just broke for him, you know. And I, um, so I, I circled around once more. The light changed, so I zipped past him. But I was like, okay, I'll circle around and and give him some money. God bless you. And moved on. Uh, other times, that doesn't feel as comfortable to me, or it doesn't feel like the right move, but I, uh, I'll i sometimes carry some apples with me in my car. Sometimes I'm, I feel more comfortable giving somebody food than I do giving them money, and so I have food. So I have something to give them. Or when I'm going into Trader Joe's, sometimes there'll be a family in the parking lot, and they're asking for money, and so I'll get them something in the store. Right? That's, that feels like a comfortable way for me to uh, to love mercy with that particular person. Buy them something healthy, right? So they've got something to eat, and I'll know it's good. Or if I'm going into Starbucks, and somebody's, you know, somebody's there, I'll ask, hey, do you want a cup of coffee? And get them a cup of coffee, right? Sometimes they're like, yes, I do. I'd like a triple <laughs> macchiato with four pumps, half-calf, and, uh, and I'll be like, you know, I, I don't buy myself $6 coffee, so I'm I'll just get you what I'm having, okay? It's going to be drip today. And it's like, okay. And hopefully that's enough because coffee is the nectar of the gods. So you got to have it. So, um, now, inside of this, can there be a point where we're helping hurts, where our, our mercy ends up not being merciful, but ends up worsening a person's condition? And yes. And I, I think we can act with wisdom and love and mercy at the same time. It's it's good to have that in mind. Uh, we we had uh, it's humorous in some ways. We we had a conversation a meeting with with a bunch of pastors from the city, and we were talking about homelessness in the city. And and one person in the group said, "You know what? We we have to be more careful in the way that we're doing handouts because sometimes it leads to further impoverishment." And da da da. Another pastor in the room was very upset by this. It was like, no, we you give money, you give food every time, you don't think about it, you just do it, that's the way it is. Starts quoting the Good Samaritan to the other guys if he never heard it. It's getting a little loud, a little heated, and you know, the rest of us are like like breaking out popcorn going, oh, this is <laughs> the Lutherans are feeling fiery today. Look at this. And, um, <clears throat> but but it was interesting. The The person in question uh, was a a woman who's kind of well known among the homeless in Torrance for quite some time. She's living in a tent on airport drive over by the airport for uh, a handful of years. And, And the one person would bring food on the regular. The other person pointed out that this woman finally died, cold and alone, covered in her own feces in her tent. Is that really merciful? These questions are real. And they're, they're kind of complex. Uh, but even as we exercise wisdom, we, we need to be generous in our mercy. Right? Now, best case scenario is when we're able to blend some, some Hasid and some mishpat together, right? Where our mercy brings people to a place where it's not just meeting the need of the moment, but it's helping them get to a place that's better. Right? So I'm, I'm very proud of our churches helping start Family Promise. Right, where we're taking homeless families with minors, and that is a bridge to get them off the street. They don't stay on the street if they're part of that, that program. They get into work, they get into homes. Uh, the work that we're exploring now with the villages, uh, just down the street here, it's similar. It's a bridge to get people off the street. And when we're able to do that, to me, that's like, that's a win-win-win. The more we can do with that, the better. But at the same time, sometimes the best we can do for somebody is to give them some food. And that, too, is doing the work of God. It's loving the set. Yeah? All right, one more. Let's walk humbly. So this one is really interesting to me. Um, humility is always a virtue in the Bible, right? There's never a bad time for humility. Uh, but in this context, it's, it's really, it's curious to me. It doesn't fit quite with the others, Right? Like, uh, act justly, love mercy, those fit together oh so nice, but how did humbly walk humbly get into this list? And uh, I'll offer this humbly, because I'm, I'm not sure this is what it's about, but, but try this on. Uh, so I have noticed over time, uh, seen this uh, enough that, that there's a bit of a pattern, something to think, okay, this is worth naming as a danger. But sometimes... When we're coming to a place where we're getting more concerned with justice and compassion, sometimes as we're growing in our capacity uh, to to really love mercy and to really do justice, sometimes humility kind of disappears for a while. And we get a bit of a swagger where it's like, you know what? I'm doing the real stuff. I'm doing the work of God here. I don't know what's wrong with the rest of you, but, you know, you need to get on this bus because this is... This is where it's at. Sometimes this manifests in another version of our scale spirituality where it's like, hey, if I'm doing this, then maybe I don't need to worry about these other scenarios. Other times it looks maybe like looking down on people who don't share your passion on a particular topic or they don't express it to the same degree or whatever the case might be. But in that, I see this and go, okay, walk humbly. Walk humbly, that makes sense. As we act with justice, as we, uh, as we love mercy, to keep doing so in humility as well. Uh, one way that we might do this, friends, is by giving people some space and grace to care about those aspects of injustice in our world that particularly hit their heart, uh, rather than insisting that what matters most to me matters most to you as well. I pastored a woman years ago who was was very passionate about just all things creation care, and it's it's a perfectly biblical passion. It's super important, but she struggled mightily with anyone who didn't care about it as much as she did, and it it caused a a lot of angst for her in life. And um, uh, there was kind of an insistence that. Because this is something God cares about, you've got to care about it too, and you have to care about it as much as I do. Um, we could do that with, with any area. I mean, I'm, I'm one who cares passionately about abortion. And it, it, can, it can trip me up, right? I think about things. I read things like, um, you know, this is a heartbreaking stat, but more black babies are, are aborted in New York City every year than are born. And I read that, and I'm like, ah, oh, I mean, if this is not a justice issue, what is but not everyone feels that to the same degree that I do. And I need to let people maybe feel it less. And and we could say this for any... And I'm not saying we shouldn't care about these things at all. If they matter to God, they need to matter to us too. But none of us are capable of caring about everything equally all the time. And maybe, maybe as we think about these different areas where I know people in this room have have a lot of passion, but think about things like like justice when it comes to poverty, racism, abortion, labor rights, clean water, a fair justice system, good policing, care for single mothers, parental leave, fair wages, just housing, free and fair elections, the foster care system, discrimination against LGBT people, gun violence, care for the environment, uh, war, Mass incarceration, prisoner education and reentry. Right? This that's a partial list. But there, there's none of us here who is going to be able to care about all those things equally. But collectively, if we give each other grace and space to kind of pursue the areas that God puts most on our hearts, then collectively a lot of good gets done. Does that make sense? But here's the thing. We have to be humble enough to let God be the one who is directing our passions. Uh, We have to be humble in order for that to happen. Uh, Martin Luther King, Uh, he wrote this. I loved it. He says, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the heart. That's the heart, friends. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with our God. Let's pray together.